wanted to do something beautiful for someone that you care deeply about. I hope so. Go a little further. Have you ever wanted to do something beautiful for God? Have you ever thought about all that he has blessed you with? Not only material things, but also his salvation. You just have in your heart. You want to do something that you find pleasing and beautiful. Well, you know, in the Gospels, there's one story, and it's the only place where Jesus, at least it's recorded in the Gospel, called something beautiful. And it's a story that's found in, uh, in two, two of the Gospels, Matthew and Mark. And instead of reading the story, I'm going to ask, um, actually, Greg, can we pull up the slides? I'm going to show Now the Passover festival of unleavened bread was more than two days away, and the chief priests and teachers of the law schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, Why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. They rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. Or you will always have with you, and you can have them any time you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could, and she poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then, Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Here's my find that's so cool about that, that clip. This is the way Jesus is headed to the cross. He knows it's ahead of him. And even though he's been telling his disciples about this, they're not getting it. <laughs> In fact, uh, up to the last minute, they still can't believe it's true. But this woman, whom we know almost nothing about, she took a very expensive alabaster jar of oil, probably a family heirloom, and she broke it and poured it on his head because she understood and was preparing. And then he gave this evaluation of this. She has done a beautiful thing for me. She has done what she could. That's a beautiful thing. Simon, I'm sorry, Judas did not uh, share that opinion of, of what happened. So you see the natural person in, the, in Jesus' 
value of things quite differently. So that's the question I want to ask. Is there something beautiful that we can do for God? Is there a way that we can understand what God is doing and value that so much that we're willing to even sacrifice to do something he would find beautiful? But what would God want? What would God desire? Well, we find that here in Ephesians chapter 4, the passage that our sister Katie just read here. And I'm going to be in the NIV. It'll be up here on the screen. But I think I want to summarize this in one sentence. We do something beautiful for God by choosing unity, humility, and service. Let's pray to you. Father, we ask that you would open our eyes. We've talked about that today. And uh, we saw the disciples didn't have their eyes open to the meaning of that last week by that woman. And Judas certainly did not have the vision to see the beauty of what that woman did for you. Would you help us to see, God? Would you open our eyes so that we can see the beauty of what you call us to? Father, help us. Because it's the kind of thing that we're not going to grasp so open your word to us, please help me to speak what is right and true, and help our own eyes and our heart to be open in this way. Thank you, Lord. Amen. All right. So, like I said, our sister Katie read this to us before, and I'm going to summarize in this one phrase that we do something beautiful for God by choosing unity, humility, and service. Now, unity, he's going to talk about in just a second, but I want us to remember, we've been going through this book of, of Ephesians, and if we've had our eyes open, this unity has been on every page. And when you come to this great passage in chapter 1, and he ends it after describing all of the wonders of our salvation and being saved by his, by his grace and his blood and being redeemed, it says that God made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed through Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment. So there's something that's going to fulfill all things. What is it? To bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. So the present division, as well as the present evil and sin and suffering, are not God's ultimate design. It's something that he, in his wisdom, allows for a greater purpose for a time. But ultimately, there is going to be this unity, and this is at the very heart of the gospel. And then we saw chapter 2 just a couple weeks ago where Paul talked about how Jew and Gentile, the, the two groups that were most at odds with each other in the ancient world, in Paul's situation. They were, they were really despised each other, much more than any racial or, or division, other division we can think of today. He says this, for he himself, Jesus himself, is our peace, who has made the two groups, Jews and Gentiles, one. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God in the cross. And so we talked about that, that God's desire is that we are reconciled to God, but also reconciled to each other. His desire is for a new humanity in which there is a, a unity in love, which is scarce known on this side of the glory. So now, we come to Ephesians 4. After three chapters of describing all that God has done and is doing 
in, in the most exalted terms, then he wants to come to our response. He wants to come to our response. And the first thing on the docket, the number one item on the agenda is this. I want you guys to be united. I want you guys to treasure, to keep the unity that I have made. As a prisoner of the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. I just got three chapters uh, talking about this calling that you've been given. Here's, I, I urge you to live worthy. Sometimes it's, it's interesting and instructive to remember what Paul could have said or other people in the Bible. He was an apostle of God. He had the ultimate authority after Christ within the church. But he doesn't say, as an apostle of Jesus Christ, I command you to live a life worthy of this calling. Here's how to do it. No. As a prisoner, remember he is in shame for the gospel. He's reminding them of Christ and the humiliation he paid. He says, as a prisoner, I urge you to live a life. You see, the, the kind of response he, he wants to invoke in us cannot be commanded. It has to come from our heart if it's going to mean anything. What is that response? Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So this, we have God's gift to us, and here's God's call. Seek the unity of the body through this humility. Paul goes on to talk, well, this passage right here. God's already made this unity, right? He reminds us there's like the sevenfold pillar of this, of this temple. There's one body, body of Christ. There's one spirit, the Holy Spirit. There's one hope. We are together looking forward to that day when Christ comes back and redeems and perfects all things. There is one Lord, Jesus Christ. There is one faith, and here doesn't mean our subjective faith that we have, but rather the faith uh, of the Christian faith, the doctrine and teachings being handed down. One baptism. Told in second, or first Corinthians 12 14, for we have all been baptized by one spirit into the body of Christ. So, there is, I, I know some people talk about a baptism of the spirit after we're saved. To be frank, you never see that in the gospel. What you see is here, we're already baptized by the spirit into one body. And then there is, of course, one God. So, Paul's making pains, taking pains to understand, to make us understand. God has done everything to create the most profound sevenfold unity that we can ever imagine within the body of Christ. Our call is not to create a unity that's not there, but to keep a unity that's already been established in the body. And I think, you know, an analogy is not hard to find, right? I have a, I have five siblings, so there's six of us all together. And I remember growing up, sometimes we got along great, and sometimes we didn't. Probably your story too, with your siblings, right? And uh, as we got older, I began to realize how dearly my mom uh, loved us to get together, how, how much she hated when we fought. In fact, I remember, I think as I got older, even as an adult, you know, sometimes we'd ask her, What do you want for Christmas this year? And her response would always be some variation of the same thing. I mean, I just want all you guys to get along and get together. And uh, later she would, she would say there was nothing she enjoyed more 
than seeing the siblings as adults get together and have fun and have fellowship and love each other. Why? Well, there's a unity already there, right? I mean, we were all siblings. We were raised together in the same family. We, we can't make that unity. It's already given to us. But we, through our actions, can either make that unity, or through our neglect, or harsh attitude, or judgmentalism, or selfishness, we cannot do that. We can make what God has made real in our church something more and more manifest, or something less and less seen. And that's the idea. So we come back to this phrase, then. How do we do this? Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Bearing means I put up with you and you put up with me. Uh, it's the idea of forbearing. Sometimes it's not as much forgiveness that we need to worry about, but forbearance, just putting up with each other's weakness. We, we need that in every relationship very often, and in the church as well. And then it says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the body of peace. And he talks about this humility as though it's the first thing on the docket to bring this unity, to keep this unity. And I, and I think he's right. I think the gentleness and the patience and the forbearance flow out of that humility. And the reason why is, is this. We, we, tend to find, we tend to have a wrong idea of what humility is. So yes, and people, what, what does it mean to be humble? Many of them would say it means to have a low opinion of yourself. Oh, I'm really good. I can't do this. And no, that's not humility at all. After all, Jesus Christ was the most humble man who ever walked the earth, and he knew who he was. It wasn't like he thought he was inferior. Humility is not thinking low of myself. It's looking at you and valuing you as much as I value myself, valuing your concerns as much as I value what concerns me, and even sacrificially working to help meet your needs. That's my calling. That's my role in your life. That's what humility is. Philippians 2. Philippians is kind of a sister passage to this book. You see the similarities? Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, if this means anything at all to you, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and in one mind. What does that look like? Do well, all have the same opinion? No. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but also to the interests of the others. So that's our first calling here, right? Our first calling is to keep the unity of the Spirit through asking God to create this kind of humility within us. How do we, how do, we do that, though? I mean, how do we become more humble? Well, we think of humility only in the sense of thinking of all of ourselves or being arrogant. That's a tough gig, right? Because if I think of being more humble, then all of a sudden getting, uh, getting proud of myself there really is really important to me. And uh, I heard about a pastor that he was given an award by his congregation, the most humble pastor in America. And uh, he was given a t-shirt. And he was fired the next week for a beer. Um, 
And, and that's the dynamic, right? We think we're humble, but obviously there's, there's a pride showing through there. Well, it's looking at Jesus. And that's why he's being held up as an example to you in Philippians. Looking at Jesus. He was the most intelligent, the wisest, the most powerful, the most virtuous man that ever walked this planet. And he gave his life to serve. He gave his life to serve. We'll come back to that idea. I put a picture of a castle up here because though Paul's words are mainly directed to, to people in the local church body, um, afterwards, after many years after Paul, of course, the church grew internationally. And so I think this is a short digression. We can ask the question, okay, Paul's mainly concerned with, with our interaction and our unity within the local church body. But what does that mean towards the other parts of Christianity? What about the Eastern Orthodox and Catholics and Presbyterians? You know, what, what is our stance towards them in light of all this? And I, I think the best analogy is one suggested by C.S. Lewis, who extend it a little bit. Imagine all Christendom, all true Christians, as being like being brought into this one castle or this one estate. If there's one gate, it's marked Jesus. You cross it by faith in him. But when you get inside, you find there's all different kinds of, of hallways and, and wings. You've got the charismatics over here, you've got the Presbyterians over here, and, and you've got the, the different areas. What C.S. Lewis suggested was this, that uh, we think of our own traditions that we're in, we're broadly of the conservative evangelical tradition. I, I hate to almost use that word again, because sometimes it means more that word evangelical connotates more politically than it does theologically uh, sometimes these days. But for our purposes, we're gonna, that's who we are. That's our hallway. And I, I think what I would suggest based on this is, is this. Number one, find a room. Okay? So a room would be a local body of believers. That's who we're called to be a part of. And but number two, don't bolt the door. Instead, Remember that you are part of a, of a greater, greater thing than you can understand. And we'll adopt the doctrines of true Christians and who isn't. They're all called on the name of the Lord. Uh, we, we, we seek to be in unity with them as much as possible. That doesn't mean we all believe the same thing about every particular thing. Uh, the body of Christ is incredibly diverse. And that's it by intention. But it means that we, we don't let those things be focused when we evaluate other people in other churches, we let the cross be the focus by which we view all those things and each other. All right, so enough digression here. So we get back to this idea. The first way that we do something beautiful for God, for Christ, is by, through humility, seeking the unity of this body. The second way is by serving, is by serving. So Paul has in mind that we serve each other, which goes beyond the idea of just forbearing with each other, right? Just giving along, but actually giving up ourselves to serve. Now he does it kind of in a strange way. Did you notice this? But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ has apportioned it. This is kind of may strike us as a little bit weird because normally when we think of grace, 
when we think of the grace of our salvation, that we can become right with God through our place, place our trust in Jesus and what he's done on the cross. And as we're told right here in Ephesians chapter 2, this is not by works, it is by grace alone. It means it's free. If I go out on a job and I work for two weeks and I get a paycheck, that's my grace. That's a paycheck. But if someone loves me and they have a sense of my need and they give me a check, not because of anything I've done, it's simply because out of their out of their heart, that's grace. That's the idea. So grace here though, he's using it in a different way. He says, You have been given a grace. In fact, Christ is giving you a grace. And it's clear what he's talking about. He's talking about a spiritual gift. A talent, an ability, something you are able to do to help other people in time become like Jesus Christ. That's the ultimate goal. This is something that God takes very seriously, even if, even if we don't sometimes. In fact, he, he does this something that may strike us even more strange. He quotes a psalm, one of the psalms that I think Psalm 68. Um, it's a song of the victory of a king. And it talks about this king arising forth, you know, being exalted and giving gifts. Because in the ancient world, you know, when you won a battle, a great battle, you got lots of lots of uh, tribute, lots of booty, lots of spoils of war going on here, and you would distribute those to your your soldiers who helped you with the battle. Now the irony here is Jesus Christ has been exalted and won the victory with evil powers. We didn't have any part in that, but he still distributed his gifts. That's the idea, that's why he quotes this. And I think the idea, again, this deals with grace. We receive these gifts not because we have won, done anything to help the battle, but because we will. Because God allows us into the causation of sharing him in his work. Part of that is to defeat the powers of evil. Now, and then he, he talks about this. What does he ascended mean? It's something he also descended to the lower earthly regions. He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill all the universe. You know, the flow of this whole thing where the God launches finds out is so why did Paul put it in here? I think to remind you serving is an act of humility. This kind of serving. I mean we can serve people who the laws and everything like that, but that's not what he has in mind. So he reminds us, one who ascended in this great victory at the cross, the one who gave gifts, first he descended. He went to the lower parts of the earth, by which I, I take he means the grave. <coughs> he lowered himself from heaven to become like us, Philippians 2, even to the point of death on the cross. So that's our example. That's our example. So then he builds upon this. So this Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Alright, so what, what's he talking about here? All right. He wants to say each one of us has this grace, this gift of God's portion. And he says, I want you to understand it's not just the, the people he named the apostles. Apostle just means a set, but it can have a broad sense. But more technically, it would mean the, the apostles who were writing the scriptures and witnesses of Jesus Christ. And they were the, the ones becoming the foundation 
and the prophets. I think he means New Testament prophets here. Remember, the New Testament wasn't written, so God gave special gifts uh, to people to help them understand what God desired of them as his new body in Christ. The evangelists, those who have special gifts and passions to, to bring others into the kingdom. And we think of Billy Graham, but you know in the Bible, the one person called an evangelist is a layman. And the pastors and teachers. And the way this is phrased in Greek, this is this is one person in two roles. Pastor just means a shepherd. So think of the word pastoral or pastor and teacher. So a pastor is someone who shepherds, and they do that especially through teaching. Now notice he doesn't say these people are given so that they do the work of the ministry. These people are given, and he wants to emphasize, to equip you for the work of the ministry. To use your gifts to serve other people so the body of Christ is built up. Until we have unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. Now, this idea of being built up, the body being built up, this is uh, something my 10th grade English teacher told me never to do. Paul is actually mixing metaphors here. We may not get that because. Uh, we don't use the words quite the way they did, but in the Greek language, that word built up is a word you would use in constructing a building. So he wants to use that terminology, that imagery is going to come back to it eventually. But he also uses the imagery of a body, the human body. So he's got, he's mixing these metaphors. Amy and I have this friend in college named Valerie, uh, wonderful girl, very bright girl, okay? Uh, this wasn't a problem for intelligence, but for whatever reason, she would always mix her metaphors. And uh, we always had a good time. She, she was fine about laughing with that. So instead of saying an inexperienced person was green or went behind the ears, she referred to them as wet behind the ears, uh, or green behind the ears, rather. Or um, instead of saying someone was up a creek without a paddle or up a tree without a ladder, uh, someone who was in trouble would be up a creek without a ladder. Um, <laughs> that's what Paul's doing. He's got two different metaphors in his mind, and he's going to mix them back and forth. One is that the body that, that we are built up like a building, and the other is that we grow like a body. And we see that right here. That body analogy is, is wonderful, but he's choosing to because in the one fully conveys what he wants to get across. Now, this body analogy, or I'm sorry, the building analogy is actually one that he's already talked about in Ephesians chapter 2. As he talks about in him, in Jesus Christ, the whole building is joined together. And he talks about the foundation there. So Jesus Christ is the cornerstone, right? Chief cornerstone, the, the one that is set first and it gives direction to the rest of the building. And the apostles and the New Testament prophets are the foundation of that. And then in him, the whole building is joined together and becomes a holy temple. In him, you too, he's using the plural here. If you are in the body of Christ, this is his desire that you, along with us, together being built together to be dwelling, that's the idea of the temple, in which God dwells, in which God lives. Of course, in Paul's time, if you're talking about temple, this was in your mind, this is the great Jewish temple. It was a building in which showed the glory of God that symbolically is also place where God's spirit was represented. That was what was, what was meant by that. So when Paul says this, 
This is what he has in mind. That God is not any longer interested in being in living, even symbolically, in a house made of stone and wood for the flesh. Of God's people living together and serving each other in this kind of unity and love. This is a beautiful, beautiful thing we have. Alright, and then he goes on. So that the body of Christ may be built up. And so here he's going to change the analogy a little bit. That uh, he's going to even extend it. And then we will no longer be infants. So in that sense, okay. Tossed back and forth by the waves. Alright, another big metaphor. Infants tossed back and forth by the waves. But that's alright, he's inspired. We're going to let it go here. <laughs> and blown here and there by every wind of teaching, by the cunning craftiness of people that deceive the scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love. We will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. And so, obviously, the analogy is something like this. Not only are we building that is based on the cornerstone of Jesus and the foundation of the apostles' teaching, no, that isn't it at all. We are a living organism. And in this body, the different parts, they, they have a unique role and purpose and way, but they have one common goal, and that's to let the body grow and mature and do what it's called to do. Paul talks about that elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. Just imagine being a body that was all made out of eyes. Some of you are old enough to remember uh, the Adams family, and you remember things, you know, just this disembodied hand that came out of there. And of course, that was weird because no hand is going to work when there's no body attached to it, right? And, and I think Paul might have used that illustration if he would have been, uh, been around today. Uh, we're not like thing where we all have the same purpose and role and gifts. No. We work together in our differences for a common goal of becoming. A beautiful building, a temple raised to God, of becoming a mature body of believers, where we're all more and more looking like Jesus Christ. Now, here's the thing. This is what God calls us to. We don't like this sometimes. Because this is a group project, as I talked about last week. And there's a lot of this in myself. We never like group projects. Because you got to put up with other people. And other people are annoying, unlike ourselves, right? <laughs> other people can be annoying. Look at that teller. He's like, yeah. Weird idea that happens. This is going to cost, it's going to cost our time to be an integrated part of a Christ centered community. That doesn't happen without time. And that's a very valuable reason. It's going to take involvement. To be frank, my own self and my, my flesh is part of me anyway. I don't want to. I don't want to be involved in, in serving you more than I have to because that's going to involve some messiness and I'm going to have to extend myself. And I don't know what the price tag exactly is there in all this. There's a vagueness about it and, and I want some clarity and I want some self sufficiency. And, uh, and you know what? God doesn't care what I want. This is what He wants. This is what He values. 
So the question comes to us then, you know, if, if God wants us to practice this kind of humility of serving each other, valuing each other more than even our own needs, this is tough. It's going to take spiritual power. Pray that kind of pray for it. But it's also going to take us saying, it's worth it. Why? Well, maybe for no other reason than we wanted to be with Jesus Christ, who has done everything for us. If there's no part of you that resonates with that, you can say that that's fine. But if there is, there is. Be aware with that that uh, perfume, that ointment that she anointed Jesus' head with was expensive. She did it because it was a beautiful thing. I love that one phrase, Jesus. She has done what she could. You know, as a woman, she didn't have she didn't have the ability to afford those debts. But apparently she saw coming out of the pipe that must have been so grievous to her. She didn't have any power. She couldn't do anything to change those things. But Jesus said that when she came and offered that sacrifice, anointing him for his burial, that she did what she could. I love that. Because there are times where I feel I do not have the ability, the strength, the talent, the gifts to make any real difference don't need to worry about the results. Do what you can. And that's what it says you're doing, right? You don't have to have the most spectacular gifts. You don't have to have the most profound understanding. Is there something you can do that in light of what God says here, you value to be very faithful to Jesus? She has done a beautiful thing. She has prepared me for my burial. 